think they got the answers, I change the questions. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. Are you chewing gum? Hey everybody, welcome back to Daily Notes presented by Almost Sideways. This is Adam and I'm so stoked because we're taking closer to October. We're going to be dropping some like horror themed horror. This is very loosely horror, but film that we'll be deep diving today. But I had my good buddy, Sack Saltz, who is part of the Almost Sideways family as well. You know, he's he's been... After I started doing daily notes, he's like, we got to deep dive two movies, Adam, because Todd and Terry have not seen them or don't care about seeing them anytime soon. And that is Anaconda or an Anaconda, Arachnophobia. I would, I would, I'm sorry. There it was. In the first three seconds, my first F-bomb. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's all good. We're, we're on cut here. <laughs> perfect. Yes. I would love to deep dive Anaconda. However... That no, where I said with arachnophobia, another similar yeah, that's what it was. single worded a movie from the '90s creature feature. Yeah, that that's true, and that arachnophobia is a really fun movie, and I can't wait to talk about that at, at some point. At some point, John yeah. Goodman, yeah, John Goodman John in that movie Goodman. deserves a sp- he deserves a spinoff film from that that uh, that role. The greatest creature um, uh, service man in the history of movies. In right. That would be a good. That'd be that'd be a good uh, power rankings uh, for almost oh, sideways bug, to do. The bug exterminator. That's the proper word. Yes, the top bug exterminators. He would be number one on my power ranking. Mine too. So if they, we ever do that, you at least have a point on everybody else. So, <laughs> and the other movie that you mentioned that you really want to deep dive is the Adams Family Values. So that's what we're here doing today. Adams Family Values, the second film in the Adams Family. A franchise of films. There's four films now. Apparently, they're making an Adams Family two that for the animated movies. So there was a straight to like DVD or VHS like Adams Family in the mid '90s that I've never seen, and I don't want to. Yeah, I have no interest in that either. But listen, man. Okay, I want to start off this podcast by giving by by praising you a little bit. Okay, kissing your ass a little bit. Like the, the daily notes have been phenomenal. I've been super impressed listening to them. I love the free flowing style. Something I love doing um, my, my normal podcast with Todd and Terry, but something that I think sometimes we get really um, pigeon held by like the structure of it. And, you know, I mean, we, we do very long in-depth podcasts of these deep dives, but in the process, we, we kind of lose track of the free flowing nature that is podcasting in the 2020 world. So like, I love like your last podcast. I love where that conversation went. So like, I want to talk about Adam's family values. It's, it's a, it's a movie that I love. I, I think you love it too, but like, if I don't, you know, I, this is a, this is a funky adventure that I do not know the destination of. And that is exciting to me. Well, I appreciate that, man. That's a, that makes me feel good, good, warm and fuzzy inside. That might be the beer talking too, but who knows? But I really do appreciate that, dude. Yeah. And I'm drinking a peach margarita, by the way. So yeah, that may explain a lot. (laughs) Well, I I appreciate the peach margarita. (laughs) I'm drinking a Sessions IPA myself. So it's a mango margarita. The fact that I can't, I can't, I didn't remember that. It's probably not a good sign moving forward. But um, hey, listen, <laughs> it is all it is all fun here on on Daily Notes, uh, part of the Almost Sideways Podcast Network. I'm just, you know what? These guests that you get on, I'm amazed. Like you are reaching out, and you are building a coalition. You are like the Joe Biden of bo- the podcast network. You are reaching out across the aisle, getting people on that would never be on. I'm just, you know what? The hats off to you, man. It's awesome. 
I appreciate that. I've been uh, been reaching out. I'm going to reach out pretty soon for my fourth interview. So I'm uh, I have a couple of ideas, and I I got a list of people that I want to talk to. So and like for the last one, Dwayne, I've never interacted with him on any video before. That was I was interacting with him on Twitter. I said, hey, I know you have a podcast, I have a pretty decent following. Would you want to be on and just kind of shoot the breeze with me? And he's like, absolutely, man. And he was like thanking me for being on the podcast. I was like, no, man, you, I appreciate you for being on. Well, that's the, <laughs> like I, that's the thing about the con, the, the life of a content creator is that you are constant. This is the this is the glam that the unglamorous part that they don't tell you about, right? You have yeah. to promote yourself all the time. You have to be like freaking Henny Youngman in an elevator. Have you ever heard that story about Henny <laughs> Youngman in an elevator? And he's like, you know, uh, he sees these people and he's like, you know, pay me 20 bucks. I'll be at your kid's birthday party. I'll give you 10 minutes. Like you have to promote yourself so hard as a content creator. And so I think this is a great platform to do it. And I heard you give me the challenge. You, you, you put down the, 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 uh, the goblet. No, what, whatever the word is. The gauntlet. gauntlet. Excuse me. I'm going to try to get Kevin Wilmot on this podcast. All right. I loved. I loved your shout out to him. I loved the 24th. I don't know. Did you ever see the 24th? It is a phenomenal movie. I have. I don't think I've seen that one actually. I don't think so. I'm writing it down so I don't forget about it though. It just came out this summer, and of course, he got all this publicity for Defy Bloods, which we reviewed on almost sideways podcast and i think it was thrice approved i think we all liked it but the 24th frankly is a better movie now of course they're very different movies but like i was totally impressed by the 24th it's on my it will it will end up on my list of the top 10 movies of the year it is a phenomenal movie about the all this all black military unit that was stationed in houston texas right in the cusp of world war one but it's not about necessarily their military i mean it, it sets you up to believe that it's about like this military training shit but it's really about the racial discrimination and the sort of perverse prejudice that they receive and um it is a tragic movie and it was the largest murder trial in american history which would probably Kevin Wilmot to write this screenplay that I, I believe he started about 15 years ago anyway this is a long-winded way of saying i want kevin wilmot on the podcast i will try to get him he's an awesome dude and you know what he is he's one of the great heroes of the great Lawrence, kansas best town in the midwest yeah that would be awesome to get him on the podcast he'll be the highest profile person we've got and you know he's an oscar winner too that'd be just a fun conversation and having your connection to him if we can get him on that would be that awesome and hey i'll i'll piggyback on you piggyback with you on that uh interview too i have that'd be that'd be a good conversation right there well listen i've worked with kevin's I know I know Kevin so well. I've worked with his kids. So Kevin's Kevin's son is named Kevin the Second, but uh, he also goes by the sequel, which is great. Great nickname. <laughs> That's a great, great nickname. Kevin's daughter Ruthie works at the local Boys and Girls Club, and there was a great day when Kevin brought in his Oscar, and all these seven and eight year olds were like, "Whoa, look at this shiny gold object!" I mean, he is a great, like, just member of our community. Such a fun, uh, sweet guy. Really nice to everybody, and. I think he's been a great sort of attribute to the film program here at, at uh, KU. I, when I worked with him as a graduate teaching assistant, he's like the most awesome professor ever. So he's just a, he's a great guy. We will get him on the podcast if he ever has time because he's always in the middle of projects. But uh, I will I will try my darndest. Keep pushing until they say yes. yes. Keep pushing to get an answer. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I guess that's my next question because we actually officially have never met in person. We've only met through like uh, phone calls, uh, drunken phone calls in Vegas and uh, – and also, you know, just every once in a while, we pop it on the Almost Sideways podcast. But how long have you been in Kansas? So 
I am originally from Oregon. I went to college with Terry. And maybe we can establish this backstory a little bit more. Um, I went to Kansas after I graduated from college because after I was a history major in college, I went to a really small Lutheran school with Terry. This, that's where we first met. And um, this was a it was a really nice school, Concordia University, RIP. It just shut down this year. It's a whole other long bullshit story I, I don't want to get into necessarily, um, but I will if we have to. Um, but uh, <laughs> I graduated from there and I knew that I wanted to do something with movies because every the reason I, I was a history major was because, number one, it had the best professors and uh, and number two, it wasn't like bullshit religion, which is another issue. But the, the third reason, though, the biggest reason was I, it was an excuse for me to write papers about movies. So like when I took, my, for example, this German history class I took, um, I wrote my final paper on how the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, this classic like 1919 German silent film actually was like predicting the rise of Nazism. And this is not necessarily the most original argument in the world. I mean, there was a German film scholar named Siegfried Krakauer who literally wrote a book called From Caligari to Hitler which was all about the exact same topic. But I found that in my history classes, I could get away with that kind of stuff. I could get away with writing these 20-page papers that were essentially almost the precursors for almost sideways deep dives. I mean, I could go into like historical topics and attach them to relatively obscure or older movies and really make a coherent argument about why they were historically relevant while also totally geeking out on these old movies. So Nice. That's well, awesome. Long story short, I love doing that. I got accepted. I, I applied to about five grad schools after college, and I didn't want to stay in Oregon. I, I wanted, because I grew up in Oregon, I wanted to see the world. And uh, I got into several schools. It came down to a couple schools. I chose Kansas because um, it was just a great program. And uh, I flew out here. I love Lawrence. Um, and, you know, I'm still here after 10 years. Long story short, yada, 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 just like the Seinfeld episode. <laughs> Yada yada yeah yeah, hey man, like that's that's pretty cool though that uh, that you're able to kind of turn something into like you're talking about history, but you're able to bring that back to film. We had Durbin on a few couple interviews ago where he was able to like he's able to find certain things in in movies, and that's kind of cool like, how your our love of movies can tie into different other projects that we're working on in life as well. So I th that's that's awesome that you were able to kind of turn that into it. Yeah, it was awesome because, so at Concordia, if you were a humanities major, which Terry, by the way, was not. Boo you, Terry. <laughs> um, Terry was in the, uh, the the education track, which I originally was in, but then I got out of it. But if you were a humanities major at this small school we went to, you had to write a thesis at the end of your time there. And the thesis was like, you know, a 50, 60 page document about something that you found passionate that was relevant to the discipline that you were studying. And so I wrote my thesis on the ratings code in Hollywood. And again, not something that was totally original because there was a lot of literature that was coming out about it. But I was fascinated by the way that the ratings code was established. And basically my 50 to 60 page thesis became 120, 130, 140 pages. And it became a pet project of mine. And I, and as I was writing it my senior year, I was like, holy shit, this is actually really fun and interesting to write about. Looking at how these kind of moral codes that were developed 
developed by these kind of Catholic influences in Hollywood actually still have an influence today about how movies are rated and, and how bureaucratic that system and, and unfair in a lot of ways the system really is. If you've ever seen the, the documentary, this film is not yet rated. That kind of came out at around the same time, the Kirby Dick documentary, which is a really good one. But um, again, it just kind of reinforced my passion, not just for movies, but also like the serious, you know, academic study discipline of, of film scholarship, which, you know, I have mixed feelings about now. But at the time, I was super, super pumped about. That's awesome. And like what what kind of has kind of turned you off in a way you said you were kind of like had mixed feelings on what kind of like what's kind of turning you to have those mixed feelings well you know like i said there wasn't a film like studies major at concordia so i was like the outlier yeah no you know they watch bullshit stupid you know movies at concordia yeah i I had to educate people about movies okay not the (laughs) but the other people that i hung out with not terry too obviously terry was very very well versed in movies but for the most part that the people at concordia needed to be woken up to movies now when i went to kansas was a little different these were people that were like film studies people okay they had been trained in the discipline and so what i found is that there were some aspects of it that i liked i mean people watch serious movies and they were very serious about it and you know obviously they 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 wanted to make a career out of it but but the other the problem that i found is that they used uh jargon and they used very um, specific language and rhetoric that I thought was overly academic in their understanding of movies. And so, and a lot of film scholars have written about this too. Basically in the 1970s with the rise of post-structuralism in academia, film studies kind of merged with that discipline in, in the humanities and in English and as a result, the language that we use um, to, talk, to talk about movies in the academic world is a very psychoanalytic language. And it's a, it's a language that gets bogged down in jargon and in, 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 in wording and sort of phrases that are incredibly difficult to decipher for a non-academic audience. And I was like, you know, mm. for this, I mean, I want to study film history. So that's a little bit of, of, of a difference. But I found that the scholarship was kind of moving away from that, at least in a traditional realm. And you know what? The other the other issue, too, is when you're in grad school, you know, the whole phrase publish or perish. That is so true. And I found that it was really it was tough for me to focus on on my scholarship. I, I love teaching and I love studying. But like it is it is a ruthless uh, career field. And I found a lot of people that I met had given up the things that they were truly passionate about in it because they wanted to get a job and they wanted to be more marketable. So they went away from like studying film history to studying television and studying Netflix and things like that, which were all very relevant, you know, contemporary debates, but I didn't want to study that. So I felt a little bit pigeon held uh, about that, but there were a lot of things that, that were great about KU and Kevin Wilmot was definitely one of them. This is just my perspective, but uh, the academic yeah. film needs to infuse a little bit more of like a Tarantino, Kevin Smith, like love of movies because it kind of uh, is, is not that way right now. And, I, and it needs to get back to that focus. Yeah, it's kind of you're seeing like people are like start moving towards like like Netflix and like the streaming stuff. You know, like that's that's kind of current stuff. Like a lot of the older films are getting kind of lost in it. And I admit, admittedly, when I first started with Almost Sideways, almost seven, a little over seven years ago now, which is crazy to think that's how long I've been on with you guys, is that I admittedly had not seen too many older films, and that that's on me. I was just a casual movie fan as as I'm slowly like listening to your guys' podcasts and hearing different movies and making forcing myself to go out of my kind of my big air quotes comfort zone of films at the time and watching older stuff, I've been realizing like I'm been missing this whole like generation of films that have actually are a lot better than the current stuff. And a lot of people now, like YouTuber wise, is they're focusing on current you know, current things, which is good to help grow a channel. But 
kind of educate yourself on some of the older films and and kind of have a more love, not just kind of like a, I don't know what's what what the exact word I'm looking for is. Um, well, listen, I, I think that's that really thing. I hate people like that. I hate the, I hate the film snobs out there that are like, "What? You've never seen um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, you're no film expert. You have you're no you're, you have no validity. You have no you have no credibility because you haven't seen this movie from 1996. Yeah. I mean, come on, man. Like, look, there are great movies from the olden days, and people need to rediscover a lot of those movies. There are also a lot of problematic movies from the old days too. That oh, yeah, absolutely, definitely thrown into the dustbin of history. Okay, but like, you know, one of the things I love. So first of all, Kevin Wilmot was has always been great about that. I mean, he he infuses his class with historical movies that you may have never seen or heard of, but have a very relevant discourse for today okay so he's one of the professors that does a great job of that but i love listen I, increasingly my favorite thing about watching these old movies is trying to find a sort of segue to a relevant discourse about today so like earlier this year you know terry todd and i did a deep uh we did a um come to the stable review which is what we call you know uh, obscure old movies that we watch based on the 1949 movie come to the stable we did uh, a come to the stable <laughs> movie of a movie called joe all three. Of you, oh yeah, I watched that too. Yeah, I watched listen, that as well. All three of you hated it, but I loved it. I loved it because there were so many like inroads to talking about it within a 2020 context, and that's my favorite thing about these old movies. I mean, a lot of them are junk, and you really can't make a lot of connections with them. But some of them, even if they're flawed in the way that Joe was flawed, are still interesting to view in a 2020 light. You know, Adam, did you ever see that one film clip on YouTube with Tarantino talking about Top Gun? It was, oh, I have not seen that yet. I have not seen that. I'll check that out. Okay, so like Tarantino did this like low budget indie movie in the early '90s. I think it was before he was big, but it's on YouTube right now. Look up Tarantino Top Gun, and basically he gives this beautiful five minute monologue slash total deconstruction about how the plot of Top Gun is basically a metaphor for for homo latent homoerotic tendencies of the Tom Cruise character. And I just I fell in love with that clip. Like that is so awesome to read into the movie at a deep sort of psychoanalytic level and see that you know Tom Cruise uh, is he uh, is he going to uh, resist the homoerotic tendencies that Val Kilmer and all these other characters are are are, are trying to seduce him with or is he going to go the straight way with Kelly McGinnis like that is a brilliant clip that i think uh, su- summarizes what i love about old movies and how you can play with them our time of recording yesterday i recorded a deep dive conversation with about the thing and you when you first watch an all this older movie you're kind of like just looking at it as a straight horror film but then you watch it again you're getting something else out of it and i think that's something really cool i often rewatch top gun with and with kind of like that lens on it as well and what you were saying about joe i totally agree with everything that was kind of what you brought up your points I, how i was rating it though was kind of based on what i was seeing on the, the film but there's so much different like layers that like kind of talk about like that makes it so much more relevant to today's time because there's a lot of things that you could totally draw comparison to what's in 2020 2019 2020 era that's a it's a good movie for people to check out you know tech check out joe it's it's a good conversation starter for sure that's something that you know older film not many people have seen it now but you should because there's a good conversation to be had there well and listen like you know i agree with you that it was like a goofy movie in the sense of aesthetics like obviously it's not oh yeah absolutely it's 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 the 1970s you have to kind of get over that but if you like if you look a little deeper into that movie there are so many kind of currents that are uh, relevant today um did you ever see the movie they live the john carpenter movie 
Okay, so like Rowdy Roddy Piper, right? I mean, this is yeah. a, this is a classic John Carpenter movie. Total, total, tr- totally trashy, tr- Mondo Trasho, but it is like, and again, I can't, I can't take uh, full credit for this. This is you know, Slavoj Žižek, the great philosopher, um, in *Imperfect Guide to the Cinema*, also talks about this movie. But like that, that is a political movie. Okay, you cannot watch that movie. I mean, you could watch it and just kind of like be blinded by the whole overture of macho masculinity, you know, uh, whatever. But like, it is also a movie about what is shrouded in society, that the haves and the have-nots. And when, when he puts on his sunglasses and he sees the the people the beneath the veneer i mean that is very much a statement about the 1980s it's a very much a statement about the grandiose sort of hedonism of american politics in the 1980s and beyond like and and carpenter was was is great at doing that but a lot of other filmmakers too now is it me inserting my opinion about the movie or was it the director's intent to try to draw those sort of distinctions and and to blur those lines a little bit i don't know but it's still fun to talk about you know that that's the best part about film you know everybody's gonna have a different kind of way they peel back the layers of the film and what the film is trying to say and, and kind of make a conversation if we're not having conversations about film about whatever the case may be you know what's the point of really watching them in, in a sense too everybody's gonna have a different take and it's, that's the, the best part for me anyway to kind of learn and see different people's perspective and how to look at different films in a certain light as well yeah and you know that's also affected how i watch movies today because a lot of movies are really well made they're well produced uh they look great they, they're acted well but you know what they're kind of skin deep there's not a whole lot more to them than what is at initially at sort of the, the, the present level. You know what was a movie that I was just thinking about that was kind of like that? Again, it was well-made. It got a lot of Oscar love. It was like well-produced. It was sort of the classic Oscar archetype movie is La La Land. Like La La Land is a, Hmm. it's a good movie. I like it. I like Damien Chazelle. I like the actors in it. They're beautiful to watch. It's a cool movie. The trailer is outstanding. It's one of those movies where actually the trailer ended up being better than the movie, but there's nothing deeper about the movie that you could read into it. There's nothing subversive or transgressive about the movie. It's just like perfectly fine, sort of Oscar baity, you know, well-produced, well-acted, well, well, uh, the the music numbers are fine, but there's nothing like deeper about the movie. It's, It's very skin deep. And I would take a movie like, like Joe, for for all its flaws, for all its over the top, um, you know, ridiculousness, I would take a movie like Joe over La La Land any day because there is something subversive about Joe that is that is absolutely relevant. And uh, La La Land, I don't know, it just feels sort of empty. And I don't know, I, I I don't know if a lot of other film film goers feel feel the same way. I think a lot of people just like the song and dance numbers, but. There's got to be something for me. There's got to be something deeper in the movie, you know. What you were saying about La La Land, I really loved La La Land too. It didn't make my top ten or anything like that, but it's a beautiful film. But you're absolutely right, though. It's it's you're absolutely right. There's nothing else. There's no layers to peel back. It's just kind of you're just when you're talking about it, you're talking about the performances, the songs, the the cinematography, like the the, the movie itself. But nothing. You're not peeling back any layers to kind of have a deeper conversation and maybe meaningful for the future. Who knows? Right, right. And, you know, that's why, I mean, we are, we're, we fetishize the Oscars on our podcast. And that's one of the ways that especially Todd and Terry and I connected was through our mutual love of the Oscars. And we watched the Oscars together, together once we started to know each other. But like, the Oscars are, have a really bad track track record in recognizing movies that are honestly trying to say something deep about society. Obviously, Parasite is, is a major, major step forward for the Oscars in that respect. But for the major, unfortunately, the majority of the best picture winners 
are very limited in what they say because Oscar voters get swayed by the aesthetics and by the sort of skin deep um, elements of the movie that make them feel um, excited, but not really challenged. And I love movies that challenge you. There are a few Oscar winners that 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 cha- that uh, had the audacity to challenge audiences. Like even you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest would be one. Silence of the Lambs would be one. But for the most part. Uh, the Oscar-winning movies are the ones that the Oscar voters felt most satisfied watching. And that's not the feeling I'm going for when I want to watch a movie. I want to feel unsatisfied and I want to feel compelled to speak or think about something that I'd never thought about before. Yeah, I've noticed that too. The, the further, the more I watch different things, the more I like, I like kind of using my brain a little bit more, thinking about like, well, this kind of, if a movie sticks to me, that's a good sign. Usually I'll have my first thoughts, but the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, my rating is kind of going up. I really love this movie. Maybe the movie to everybody else didn't mean too much, but for me, I'm just, I'm thinking about it a lot and constantly like peeling it back. And I, I really liked thinking about certain th- aspects and a lot of the movies that have been winning best picture kind of are maybe a little more popular for that year, but nothing that's going to have any staying power. I think parasite for the, it has a good, going to have a good shelf life. Are you excited for the criterion Blu-ray of parasite? That was like one of the top 10 moments I had this year when criterion announced they were going to release a Blu-ray. I'm so freaking excited for that shit. Yeah, I know. I'm going to be picking that one up as well. Uh, So I love the criterion collection that has absolutely uh, cultivated a lot of interest in movies too, but I have a question for you that I want to, I want to throw, you okay this is the kind of shit that we can't yeah. talk about on the almost sideways podcast because we're too we're too busy recasting braveheart or some bullshit like that okay so I want to hear your, <laughs> shots fired yeah exactly okay i want to hear your thoughts what do you think about the notion of you see a movie okay and you like it then 10 years pass and then you watch it again and you're thinking what did i just watch how did i possibly give that movie four stars 10 years ago what has happened in the last 10 years that has changed my opinion and insight about that movie adam i cannot tell you there's so many movies that I, I i now today watch that i at one point i liked or disliked and my opinion has completely changed what what do you think about that is that a valid thing that happens are we allowed to change our opinions about movies as time goes on i definitely think we can i that's definitely happened to me i've been Look, watch rewatching certain movies recently too, and be like, man, I really love this movie a lot. I didn't really care for it the first couple of times, but I, th- I think a lot of that comes in play. You kind of get swept in the moment if you're seeing it in a packed theater. Maybe the the, the theater going experience kind of kind of sways your judgment to enjoying a film a little bit more, or just maybe sways it the other way for not liking it as too much as as well. And maybe this is kind of the the headspace that you're in at that specific time when you're watching a movie, you you could change your rating and how you thought about a film. And then you have to revisit it to kind of appreciate it a little bit more. I, I definitely find that happening for me, at least. Uh, like I said, like I watched and you'll hear it in my deep dive when it comes out, but the, the thing I, I just watched it yesterday and I, I thought it was a good movie, but then I rewatched it. And I was like, man, there's so much more to this that I actually really enjoyed a lot. And I think it's a pretty, a great movie. I went from kind of a, a mediocre, like positive review to actually, a, I thought it was a, like a four star movie for me anyway, how it was pieced together and what I was looking for it as well. I think there's, there's different times where you can change your ratings and stuff. And as Terry has seen many emails, I have sent him different things where I've adjusted ratings here and there and moved movies up in my top 10. And unfortunately 
you know, when you guys are predicting my list at times, a lot of that is you're like, well, he put this movie at number three of his top 2010 films. Like, why, where was this on his? He didn't even mention um, this honorable mentions list, but because my opinions have changed on certain things and how I, I view things like Toy Story 3. I just say this for recently. You guys did the animated movie list. Where was Toy Story 3 on my list? It's a great movie, and I still think it's in the top 10 for the 2010s. However, it's not my favorite Pixar movie, and I'm not going to put a movie on my list if I already put my number my very my favorite Pixar movie and my second favorite Pixar movie and that's not Toy Story 3 I'm not going to put it on my list like it, it definitely has fallen out of my top 100 it's I still love the movie but it's I, I enjoy Inside Out so much more than Toy Story the Toy Story movie so I'm like there's there's ways I, I think a look around of uh, changing your opinions on different movies d- depending on where you're at at that moment well, like, I, I mean, this is such a tough issue because, you know, for, for me, I, I grew up loving Roger Ebert, right? I could probably tell you, you could probably name any movie made from the 60s into the 2010s, and I'll tell you what Roger Ebert gave it. I, I His reviews to me were the Bible, okay? So probably the most famous example of Roger Ebert changing his mind was with The Graduate. If you read his review from 1967, you know, he talks about what a truly great movie it was. Dustin Hoffman, just tremendous. It's a mind-blowing movie. As I'm sure, obviously, the movie did well at the Academy Awards. It's a milestone movie. But then he went back 30 years later and watched it and was like, this movie's kind of aged pretty poorly. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the most likable character is Mrs. Robinson, and she's sort of thrown under the bus a lot in the movie. Anyway, the point is, I think it is... We have to, as human beings, acknowledge that we change as people. But movies, for the most part, I mean, at least in their in their raw form, stay the same. And obviously, we can make inferences and try to make these sort of teleological arguments about how they apply to modern contemporary society. But like, okay, so so the biggest example for me that I've been dealing with for the last few years, and it, it has been a, a crisis of my personality, my identity as a human being, but... I, I cannot get past it. When I first saw Crash in 2005, I thought it was like a mind-blowing movie that I loved. I loved hearing the characters speak. I thought it was um, so articulate and talked about uh, racial issues that no movie had talked about before in such kind of raw, unfiltered terms. And when I rewatched it in 2018, and I showed it for actually class, um, it was one of the most appalling, disturbing um, I guess intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know what you want to call it, racist movies I'd ever seen. Like it totally reinforced stereotypes. And it was a movie that I found not just appalling, but even more disturbingly, the fact that I had liked this movie at one point, what did that say about me at the time that I had seen it? And you know what, it, this isn't so much about Crash as a movie, because I mean, we could talk about the merits or, or the, the not merits of it, especially as a best picture winner. But like, what do you do when you see a movie like that? And you're like, what, what, what was going on in my life at that time that I liked this movie? I, for me, it was like almost an identity crisis moment. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's like it, 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 it perplexed me. And I, I, I was very disturbed by it. That's another one that I know that I gave. I think it's four stars. I think that's the rating stills on the website too. That's one movie that's like... I, I enjoyed it the first time. I thought there was a lot of things to talk about, but then not as good as I remember it being, you know, it, it's a, you know, hearing your thoughts on it as well. It's, there's some stuff on it that I probably have to go back and 
give it a rewatch to kind of reevaluate I mean, my well, original I'll, thing. I'll give you an inside look at our process at Almost Sideways. Okay, so it's come up in the last few weeks. Do we deep do we deep dive Crash because you know it's 15 years old? It's Best Picture winner, whatever. There's a big cast. We like to deep dive movies with big casts. Okay, it's easier to come up with awards for that shit. And I said, not only did I say over my dead body, will will I ever watch that movie again? Because I mean, it was absolutely horrible to watch it. But I told Terry, go back on the website and change my four-star review to zero stars. And I've never actually asked him to do that before. But I felt that if someone were to look me up and to look at that website and see that I had given it four stars, and again, maybe this is so like self-absorbed, you know, who knows? But like, I would never want to associate myself with giving that movie four stars. And again, it was, it, it, it's, it's not so much about the movie. It's about what, who was I as a person when I watched that movie that made it effective in, you know, when I was watching it. I mean, I, I don't know. I, we should be allowed to be malleable about our taste in movies. And if something hit us when we were 15 years old, we should be allowed to say, when I was 15 years old, I was a different person. And let's move on. Let's recognize that it's a piece of shit like Crash is. Worst, worst best picture winner of all time, in my opinion. And let's move on. Like, let's be okay with the fact that we change as people, you know, that we evolve, that we, that we gain knowledge and we gain education through our experiences in life. And these movies stay the same for the most part. And we have to be able to move on and say, this is not the person that I am anymore. I have changed. I have grown. And this movie is shit. It doesn't represent what I believe in the world. There's, I think that I agree with a lot with what you just said there. And I, I, I think that it's not really self-absorbs and to think like, somebody might look you up because that happens all the time. Now, a lot of people like James Gunn made comments and he got fired from guardians of the galaxy three because of comments he made when he was a lot younger. And there's other like examples of this as well. Uh, I think a lot of things can be out of the context can be, and you liked the movie, you gave it a positive rating. Somebody who may have not listened to a single episode of our podcast and known your, or follow you at all, but can maybe let's just say for instance, knows me, goes onto the podcast, sees, Oh, Zach gave it a four star. I don't know who this Zach guy is, but he is, you know, he's going, I'm going to take him down because of this comment. And there's some repercussions to it. You've obviously changed a, a lot since you first saw it. And I think that our taste and kind of our opinion, our political opinions can change and our, the way we see the world and kind of more, um, uh, you know, kind of apathetic to the way the world is at and, based off different uh, ethnic issues and political issues as well. I think we, how we look at the world changes. So why, why is it so hard to believe that our opinion in film can change as well? Yeah. I mean, this, this, I, I think that the buried issue here that we're not, you know, explicitly mentioning by name is cancel culture. You know, do we believe, yeah, that's true. you know, do we believe that we can um, forgive celebrities and people of in the public sphere for saying comments a long time ago that come back to haunt them? And, I don't know, Adam, like for me, the best public apology of all time was, I don't know if you ever saw that, but you know, Jonah Hill, I think used some defamatory language about um, homosexuals or gay people. And he took it back. I want to say on like the Conan O'Brien show or the Jimmy Fallon show. He did. I thought he did an incredible job of not only apologizing for it, but talking about how he grew from the experience and how he felt not just ashamed from the comments, but, but prompted and uh, to grow from it. And I feel like if, if you can present yourself in that respect, if you can say that you are open for a growth mindset, 
I think it is possible to grow from the mistakes that you make in your life. The mistakes that can be construed very fairly as um, insular or, um, you know, very uh, uh, grounded in a place of ignorance. I think it's possible. So long story short, I believe in cancel culture, but I also believe in the people to grow and evolve, you know, and, and I, I think those two things can be reconciled. You know, I stand by cancel culture as well, but I'm also want to see goodness in people as well. I want to see that, okay, I understand I've, this has hurt you. Let me learn why it did. Let me understand why. Let me learn from this so I don't make this mistake again. And also kind of, you know, stand by you for the reasons why this might have been offensive as well. Because I don't want to be that same person that made these kind of uh, probably, you know, very offensive comments. You know, I, I definitely have seen that Jonah Hill clip. And I definitely, I, I, that's one of my favorite apologies as well. There's a lot of apologies that are out there. And I've, I'm actually currently dealing, not well, not I'm not dealing with myself, but I have seen somebody that I kind of acquaintance on YouTube. He is not apologizing correctly from some offensive comments he's made. And it, it kind of sucks because I'm like, I know a person who's associated with him. I'm like, you got to be careful because you're, you're associated with somebody who's not really seeing the bigger picture of things that are it's currently hurting people. Kind of that's a tricky situation for that guy to be in. And I, I want the best for everybody. I don't want anybody to, you know, suffer in the long term, but got to see the bigger picture and why things might be offensive to people as well and kind of learn from it if you say something stupid. Exactly. And I mean, maybe, you know, Jonah Hill is a two-time Oscar nominee. Maybe he was just um, fooling us. Maybe maybe it is all an act. But to me, that clip came across as very genuine and very focused on self-improvement and education, ed ed educating yourself about the experiences and the lives of others, right? Roger Ebert said that movies are like a machine that generates empathy. I mean, movies are one of the best ways of doing that, seeing, seeing life through someone else's skin. And um, it, unfortunately, uh, it just comes down to whether um, you're able to articulate exactly how you intend to grow from this experience. And Jonah Hill did a great job. A lot of other people don't do such a great job. I mean, Kevin Spacey, that was terrible, right? That is terrible to say. Hell yeah, it was. You know, I, yes, I, I, I sexually molested Anthony Rapp, but you know what? I'm gay. So that, 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 uh, you know, that's, that uh, defends all my actions. Like it is all about how you come across because, um, and the words that you choose, words have power, right? Words have significance. Words have political power behind them. Actions have power behind them. But like, you know, I don't know. I, it, it's, it's unfortunate that it comes down so much to the appearances of someone and how they can articulate things, but it's also kind of true. It's, it's, it's the only, it's the only real currency we can use to assess, um, you know, a, a person's morality. Right. And if they're truly going to grow from it, or if it's just sort of fodder or, um, you know, uh, what's the word, um, uh, lip service. You can have as a, a kind of a third party to every, like seeing the guy's apology, you kind of have to, Kind of take a kind of evaluation, see if he what's he's what's his true intention to if he's trying to save face or is he actually sincere about what he's saying? So yeah, okay, we are forty yeah. minutes in. We haven't mentioned Adam's family values at all. Yeah, Should we talk about it. What do you think? Uh, me, 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 me. That's that's, that's there's a, there's a good scene in it that really talks about some culture stuff. That's uh, that's the, with that segue. I guess we're gonna segue into our deep dive now. So this is the Adam's family values. What news? Father, what is it? It's Anatoms. He has my father's eyes. Gomez, take those out of his mouth. 
He's an adorable little baby. Fine. Rub it in. Children, why do you hate the baby? We don't hate him. We just want to play with him. Especially his head. You'll meet someone, someone very special. Someone who won't press charges. Isn't he a lady killer? Acquit him. Women must follow you everywhere. Store detectives. And the stork flew down from heaven and turned into a baby. Our parents had sex. All right, Zach. So you really wanted to deep dive this film. So... As the guest, I guess I'll, I'll pull a Terry here and uh, pass the uh, responsibilities of explaining the movie t- to you. Well, listen, okay, I, honestly, if we're being honest here, Todd and Terry have not seen this movie. They would never understand it, even if I assigned them to watch it. I think you'd agree with me, Adam. They could not appreciate it because it's a movie that I think you have to grow up with a little bit. It's a movie that is definitely flawed. It has moments that I'm like, this is not so good. But when I was a kid watching it, it, it wasn't as apparent that there were flaws in the way that the movie was told. It was just sort of there. And um, I love the movie. I mean, I grew up watching it. First of all, it is way better than the original. I have not seen Yeah, the- I, I 100% agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen the original probably in 20, 25 years. I have no interest in watching it. The original, here's the thing. I think the original went for very much um, story-centered, especially about Morticia and Gomez and... I think it was trying to be more close to the original TV series upon which it was based. 1993, they make the sequel and they go for broke. Okay. No more, uh, you know, honorific sort of referential deference to the movie, to, to the original TV series. This is like if Mel Brooks were to adapt the movie. This is all one-liners. This realizes what how stupid the original Adams Family uh, TV series is, and it just makes fun of everything. And this is something that 90s movies did really well that I think is not as apparent today. But this movie is just full of stupid one-liners, full of schlock, Full of, um, you know, this movie never wanted to be great. I think the original Adams Family actually tried to tell a story. This movie is just ridiculous setup after setup. And I think it's hilarious. I think it is hilarious in its execution. And, um, you know, the one-liners do grow a little wary after a while. We kind of get it after a while. But there is so much charm in this movie. And um, I think it's just, it's, it, it's, it's hilarious. I think it's one of the most transgressive, subversive movies of the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, that it's a, it's fun rewatching it today, right before we actually started recording. And I was just like this, man, I had a smile on my face the whole entire time. I love the one-liners. I love certain characters in there. There were some crazy out, outlandish moments, but it's far superior than the original film. I don't, I don't, think if you like the first one it, it's still an entertaining film but the second one is like everything is clicking they they realize the characters that are playing the actors do and the the way this film sh- is shot is 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 fun and i i really enjoy it there was some cringe moment uh, cringe moment uh, moments watching it especially watching it in like today but i i can overlook a, a little bit of it because it kind of nostalgia maybe plays into it but also, it, it was a fun experience. It's nothing like too, uh, too you know, you know, bad. But it, it it's it's a fun time. It's a fun time. It definitely kind of goes all over the place for sure. 
this movie, if, if we're going to do sort of a deep dive of it and talk about its sort of intrinsic, psychological, psychoanalytic meaning, this movie, I believe, is a statement about subversive whiteness. And it's a movie about, <laughs> um, and then, you know, well, you know, think about the early 1990s. Okay, you got George Bush as president, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton wins in 1992. But, you know, George Bush stands for the white picket fence, uh, white Protestant, uh, middle class, suburban um, American dream, right? And Dan Quayle talks about American values and he chastises the Simpsons. So the title of this movie is Adam's Family Values. And that, is, that was a huge issue in the early 1990s in political rhetoric. And... Um, oh, by the way, I think you should, I love daily notes, but if you ever want to re rename your podcast, you should call it Adam's family values. I'm just going to, just going to throw that out. But, <laughs> I, I kind of love, I secret kind of like low key love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love daily notes too, but Adam's family values. There you go. So, okay. So this movie, what is this movie about? This movie is about the people that get left behind which is basically everybody who isn't white and suburban and affluent and Protestant and well-off in life. Yep, my exactly. Favorite, my favorite scene in this movie is when you have that the camp counselor played by Christina Bar uh, Baransky, Christine Baransky, Becky Martin Granger, and she goes off and talks about um, Esther and Lupe and Jorge and J J what, what is it? Jamal? Jamal? It's, Jam I, I, yeah. Jamal. That is what this movie is about. And this movie is not subtle about it. I love that it's not subtle about it. This is a movie that chastises, criticizes, condemns, and mocks upper crust white suburbanites. And I love it. I mean, again, the first movie did not have that subversiveness. But this movie is edgy. This movie, and that is what ages this movie very well in 2020. I think you can watch this movie in 2020 and think, "Yeah, I kind of see what 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 this movie is getting at." Like, and it's kind of hilarious. And um, like I said, it, it age for me. It there not all of it, but there are definitely parts of this movie, particularly the the uh, Pugsley and Wednesday at summer camp uh, subplot in this movie that age very very well. Yeah, I, I love that. That's like, a, we'll, we'll get into it more, but that's my favorite scene is definitely with the doing the play and the Wednesdays, like as Pocahontas goes off. I thought that was, that was great. I thought that was one of my, it aged really well. That scene did for sure. Absolutely. And again, um, watching this movie again, it just made me think like, and you know, I can say this, this is a very Jewish movie. I mean, I'm Jewish. I'm <laughs> Jewish. This movie has, this is like if you had Jewish writers, uh, you know, you, you assign Jewish writers to the Adams family, this is what they come up with. You've got schlock, you got one-liners, you got a sort of self-aggrandizing mockery of a TV series from 30 years ago. You have pop culture references. You have this Jewish kid in the movie, Joel, right, who's just this nebbish um milk toast character who's hilarious by the way would be played by christopher mince plass if this movie had been made in the, in the two, mid 2000s and um <laughs> it i think just that there's so many things about this movie that work because of its kind of jewish angle and this movie i think comes from a place of uh, jews recognizing that again in this white culture of picket fences and um i mean it's even in wednesday's speech about um 
you know, uh, you know, hobnobbing and you'll have your, you'll have your daiquiris and you'll have your golf courses and we'll have everyone, you know, being drunk on the reservation. I mean, this is very much a movie about Jewish insecurity and, um, again, anger and, 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 uh, frustration at the white, uh, um, bourgeoisie. And I, I love it. I love this movie for that. I've seen this countless number of times. I usually try to watch this during Halloween season, October time, because it's it's kind of a, a horror-themed film that my daughter is able to watch in a little bit. It has some really funny kind of elements for her. But yeah, there's so much... There's like, Again, we're talking about layers, and there's some layers here to talk about, not just like, oh, there was a funny joke here, and there was funny things like hijinks with the trying to kill off this little baby because you know that you know there's a new baby it's getting all the attention from the kids you know there, there's funny things here and there like evil black widow person trying to kill their uncle or whatever there's some layers to peel back and have good conversations that's definitely have aged well that it's a really good pick that you, you made this made us watch this one do you know what i had forgotten because i'd seen this i've seen this movie countless times one of one of the most hilarious moments watching this movie last night was when they showed the Joan Cusack character watching that sort of unsolved mysteries Robin uh, Robin Leach ripoff show about yeah yeah so a great scene but then when they cut they sh- I can't remember what the exact line was but something about um, how the Black Widow assumes these identities and where will she fall next and who will she victimize and who will she fool and then the camera pans to a picture of Kathy Lee Gifford I mean yeah I know. Is- <laughs> That is brilliant. I love it. I love that subversiveness. And movies like that, just I, they don't exist today, sadly. But I love, I, I, and again, it's just a sign that the writers of this movie just went for broke. They were going for the cheap gags, but you know what? They were hilarious. And I think it still works in 2020. With that said, we're talking about a lot about it. Do you have any trivia planned by chance? I, I think do. we came I, up with... I, I, I okay. have a couple questions, yes. All right, so I think we came up, we agreed on six questions. Yeah, we're going to take turns going back and forth. I'll ask one, see if you get it right, and okay. then back and forth. We'll keep track like of it. it. So it's just fun. It's a little different than the other guys, but we'll try this. Okay, I'll start off first. How many knives did Gomez throw at Uncle Fester at the beginning uh, of the movie? Twenty-four. Okay, I paused it. I I counted thirty-one. <laughs> thirty-one. We'll go with thirty-one. That sounds accurate. Yeah, it seemed like a lot. Stupid question, but I was like, I gotta do something weird. Okay, what are Joel's parents' names? Oh, listen not. carefully to this one. Oh, I know that Glicker was their last yeah, name. Um, is it uh, George and Debbie? No, uh, Mel and Selma. Mel and Selma Glicker. Okay, Selma. That, that's a interesting one. Okay, well we're 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 shooting good right now, yeah. so that's good. All right. Uh, you your dog over there. See, oh the, yeah, he's. I don't know. I think he dog barks at the. Well, I can't give away the dog's breed yet because it's the actual answer to the next uh, question. Actually, what, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm not joking. Wow, history made so, up. Daily notes, man. Okay, yeah, what? What breed of dog did the nanny agency recommend? Can I say that my answer is the breed of dog that Adam owned? <laughs> Guess by the bark. <laughs> I'm going to say Doberman. Damn, yes, that's correct. <laughs> they got one point. <laughs> I, did, I did not know about a Doberman. That is, that's that's knowledge. I have a German pointer that um, uh, announces himself quite a bit on our podcast when we, when we record. My but, next question was, how many languages does Fester speak? He's fluent in 12. That's correct. Nicely done. 
Now it does. Uh, it seems like someone who does not understand the concept of human copulation could also speak twelve <laughs> languages. But again, maybe more <laughs> in this movie. He's like, "Have you ever had sex?" Oh, wait, we might be doing it right now. <laughs> exactly. All right. Next question: What other names did Debbie go by? Oh, I have no clue. I'm not even going to. They were in that. I don't remember. Yeah, they were in that video that you were mentioning. Yeah, I, I know, I know the scene. I just don't remember what. What were they? I give up. Ursula, Ursula, Carmen, and Nadine. I love it. How about um? How about again? Another kind of similar Kathy Lee Gifford moment in this movie when when Pugsley offers to trade Joel his killer card for Amy Fisher. I mean, again, just like. The, the the writers of this movie are so like you know they're so invested in 1993 American culture and again just a hilarious joke that had no future but is almost like just funny to watch the to watch the mechanics of in 2020 is just it's it's great humor. Um, okay, what is the book? Now this is this is something I never noticed before. What is the book that Joel is reading when he's forced to go to the Harmony Hut? <gasps> I have the same exact question. <laughs> Perfect. Great question. There a Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. A brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, which does seem like a very appropriately Joel Glickman book. I love that he actually brought that to summer camp. I mean, there must have been at some point when he's packing for summer camp, he, he's thinking... Let's let's bring some quantum physics in here. Let's bring some um, astronomical, um, you know, uh, uh, like let's get this deep uh, sort of conceptual philosophical conversation in there while I'm at summer camp. I love that. <laughs> yeah, all I want to do is read. All right, so I'm giving you a point for that one as well. Okay, might as well. I like it. All right, say, okay, how much money did Debbie have on the nightstand? Oh, uh, I'm going to go with 23 cents. Close. It was $3.61. Okay. All right. I, lo- I love that shot, too. Just, again, and we'll talk about this. Barry Sonnenfeld, underrated filmmaker, okay? Yeah, I, I definitely loved a lot of the shots he was able oh, to pull off in this absolutely. movie. Absolutely. Totally a creative movie from a filmmaking standpoint. Like, and, and, yes, that shot of the money on the bed stand, great shot. Tells you everything you need to know about Debbie the Black Widow. Yep. Exactly. Okay. My next question is, where does Debbie, when she's on her honeymoon with Fester, where does she order the romantic cassette tape from? Oh, it's Time Life. Uh, Time Life is correct. Nice, nice job. Again, probably, you know, 2020 um, millennial audiences, Gen Z, they would go over their head. But if you were, if you were born around the time we were, and you saw those Time Life infomercials, that is a really funny joke. But I think younger audiences wouldn't get it. Yeah, cassettes. It's like, what's a cassette tape? Exactly. What does Wednesday say? Chippewa means. What is it like? It's a translation. Oh, um, I don't even know if I remember that line. I don't know. I I, I, I can't remember. Yeah, because uh, it's like Pugsley and Gomez are in the back seat, and they're like, "What does Camp Chippewa mean?" And or and Wednesday goes, "It means orphan," because they're being taken to this uh, camp. Another, I thought that was a pretty funny line because she's like, you know, she has a lot of good one-liners in this movie that I absolutely love. So, well, listen, we'll talk about Wednesday in a second. I also want to commend the filmmakers for that car that the Adams family drive. Great, great choice of car. That could be the only car they could drive. That 1930s Jalapo, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> an awesome, awesome vehicle. 
Okay. Not a Buick. Not a Buick. No, uh, not at all. Um, okay. My next question was, what does Lurch take to, fe- this is a really tough question. What does Lurch take to Fester and Debbie's house as a housewarming gift? Now you had to kind of look at Lurch in that scene because it's not very apparent, but what does he bring as a housewarming present? A house. Oh, I wasn't paying attention to Lurch during that. Um, it's one of those things that it's, it's really funny if you like pause it and look at it, but it, it never comes up in the dialogue. I, I don't know. I, I want to say a cannon, a cannonball. Obviously, that's wrong. But right. it's a missed opportunity by the filmmaker. It, it's it's a crow that is in a bird cage. So like, as, <laughs> as, a, as a housewarming gift, you'd bring a crow in a bird cage. I, again, just uh, you know, very funny, sort of subtle visual humor in the movie, but it it works. It's hilarious. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't even. I that never even caught my like eyes, so I never even realized that was a crow. That that's that's pretty funny actually. That's good. There's definitely a missed opportunity, at least a, a gag, a joke there. All right. So I had a question about the book already, but I had a two parter. Okay. Who was Joel scared of at the humble hut? Um, uh, Same exact scene. So he yeah, screams yeah. at something. Well, Michael Jackson. That is correct. Okay. Heal the world. (laughs) Another another gag that has aged very well, that I'm sure in 1993 might have been viewed as subversive, but is now hilarious and and works perfectly. It does. All right, anything else? Well, did you have, you said it was a two-part question. Was there another part to it? Well, yeah, it was the Joel, what book was Joel reading? Oh, okay, okay. So I would. I had had one other question, which was that um, in Gary's vision, which we have to, we have, it's it's Gary's vision. We can't call it by any other name. In Gary's vision, um, who is po- Pocahontas betro- betrothed to? Oh, oh, it was a different. In other words, AKA, who does Joel Glickman play in? Yeah, Joel Glickman. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be wrong. Ironhide. That that's a Transformers character. <laughs> it, that's a good guess, but no, unfortunately, it is Running Bear. Running Bear, okay, but yeah, totally not even, yeah, not even associated with each other, if I yeah. remember correctly. Well, I think I have you as getting two questions. I'm impressed that you got the uh, the time life question that was impressive, and a brief history of time, of course. I, I got you having three, so you beat me, you edged me no, out. I had another one. Well, you had three too. Yeah, you, you edged me out. You're faster speaking twelve languages, so I think we tied. We tied. Okay, here I'll, I have a tie breaking question for okay. you. So if you get this right, well, you win. Okay. What does jam? What three things does jamboree mean? Dude, I don't know what you're talking about. What what <laughs> jamboree? It's what the it's what the Gary and his wife's uh, oh. like. The jamboree's in two weeks, and you know what that means, guys? Clean cabins, oh. creating with clay and canoes, canoes, canoes. Yes. <laughs> so dumb. But okay, so we're we're tied. We're pretty good. Oh, yeah. We remember the moments, at least. <laughs> well, listen, I didn't remember Pubert's name until I watched it again. I knew it was a, a name that ended with the letters B-E-R-T. I thought it was Humbert, which is actually the, the lead character from Nabokov's Lolita. But it's actually Pubert. So I'm not an expert on this movie. I just remember really liking it as a kid growing up and how subversive. Oh, yeah. Same same thing with me, too. I was like, I, was like, ah, I don't know how I'll do on trivia. Let's just go have some fun on this. So.
Well, and see, that's the thing. Like, we could never assign Todd or Terry to watch this movie, especially Todd. Todd would tear this movie apart. I mean, he would talk about, oh, how's it believable that this happens? And the, the comedy is uh, very uh, derivative and blah, 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 blah. No, man, you have to, like, grow up watching this movie, okay? You have to appreciate how ridiculous and corny it is and how the filmmakers went for broke with one-liners. I mean, there's absolutely something charming about that in this movie that nowadays would be perceived as, again, um, you know, cheap and uh, cash grab but in this movie it's like charming and fun i don't know yeah you, i definitely agree with that you you couldn't be a first-time viewer in this of, of this movie in 2020 and really get it unfortunately yeah, that's uh, how many movies can we actually say that about that's that's kind of uh well, gets a good conversation so you know i was texting todd the other day i was telling him that you know we're going to deep dive adam's family values and he said some comment like you know that that's gross or that'll be fun i'm like you know what man look Adam and I, one of one of the few ways that I think we overlap in movie tastes is Steven Spielberg produced movies of the early 90s. Now, this movie was not produced by Steven Spielberg, but honestly, it should have been. And like Steven Spielberg had a great track record in the early 90s of producing, arguably almost better than his directing record. But like he had, you know, Young Indiana Jones. He had the Animaniacs. Yeah. He had obviously Arachnophobia, which apparently is going to be on our next episode. And um, you know what? I mean, he, he didn't have the actual audacity to go direct these movies, but he had the, the audacity to pitch them to the studios and come up with the money and the financing for them. And um, I, lo- I loved how high concept they were. And they're some of the best movies. And they're, they're, they're the Joe Dante movies of the early 90s, which are just great. I think they <laughs> really well. And that, I, I feel like we have a karmic connection, Adam, that, that you and I both can appreciate those movies. There we go. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> Uh, so I guess we should dive into some of these categories. I guess this is a good time. Uh, if you had the highest war, who's the highest war performance you think for this film? Well, listen, uh, a, I think there's a lot to choose from, actually. So for me, I'm just going to merge these categories, war and MVP. We've already mentioned it. Christina Ricci. Okay. I, yeah. I, yeah. Richie. Richie. How do you pronounce Is it? I thought it was Ricci. Richie. I, okay. I thought it's Richie. Yeah, I thought that's what, that's what I thought. All right. So who knows? Uh, who knows? <laughs> that should have been a good trivia question. Okay. So like one of the very smart things that Barry Sonnenfeld did in this movie and, and the writer, Charles Rudneck, I, I believe was his name. So one of the things that they real Paul Rudneck, excuse me. One of the things they realized very, they must've realized very early on is that Christina Ricci, you know, 12 year old Christina, I'm just gonna call her Christina Ricci. Cause that's always what I've called her. I'm sorry. Christina Ricci, if you're listening to this, call on in. Let's let's have you as a guest on this show. It would be great to talk about this movie. Okay, number one, I had a huge crush on Christina Ricci growing up at, at this time. Okay, I thought she was, like, beautiful and perfect. Okay, I thought she was amazing. So that, that obviously influences how I view this movie a little bit. But she, the filmmakers realized that she has great delivery. She is a star in this movie. She the the, the way that she delivers lines in this movie, that total deadpan, that the, the the face that never reacts to anything, is magnificent. And uh, I think with a lot of younger actors, there's a tendency to overindulge and to overemote. And I think she just had perfect comic instincts and perfect comic timing in this movie. And like I said, the filmmakers, I think, realized that. I think the problem with the first movie is that it was too much Raul Julia and Angelica Houston, who are both great, but frankly, Christina Ricci is better, okay? She is the war. She is the MVP of this movie, and she has the best moments of this movie. Yeah, that was that was mine. I had Angelica Houston as, because she's fantastic as Morticia, but it's Christina Ricci, Hans Dinah's Wednesday. She's the MVP. Of, again, I had the same exact one. And 
her deadpan delivery, her moments, like that, that scene where she smiles for the first time and she's like, the kids freak out. I was like, oh, she's scaring us. I don't know. Great. It's, it's a, it's just, it highlights that those sequences highlight everything that she has. She's you know charismatic, but also deadpan at the same time. I, I love her delivery, like you were saying. And another movie that I really liked her too in was Speed Racer, which, you know, it's got very not really great movie by the Wachowskis, but she was fantastic. She's a fantastic actor from like Monster as well. But really, this is like where she really shines is Wednesday. Like this is one of my favorite roles that she was in. And she's by far the best part. Like her, her scenes are the ones what I look forward to watching in this, this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Can I, can I, can we, can we digress for a second? Very yeah. interesting IMDb trivia page. I don't know if you've okay. ever checked out her IMDb trivia page. Some very fascinating facts. Number one, I'm just going to bring up a few of them. Number one, she finds comfort in falling asleep watching The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, that's, it's kind of slow. <laughs> I, 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 I get that. Yeah, I, I thought that was very, very interesting. I always fall asleep during the Star Wars The Phantom Menace, so there we go. There go. Her favorite shows are The X-Files, Law & Order, The Simpsons, Friends, and Will and & Grace. It's kind of an interesting like little like t- top couple of shows for you. Yeah, for her. okay. This was one of my favorite ones. Her dislike of houseplants led to a rumor that she suffers from botanophobia, fear of plants. This is not actually true. She just dislikes the idea of bringing plant pots containing soil into the house because of the dirt and the insect. Now, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but essentially (laughs) I'm going to boil this down into essentially an agreement with her because I'm married to someone who loves plants and uh, I'm kind of tired of the plants in our house. Um, and I maybe people would read it as botanophobia. I think what's interesting about this IMDb trivia comment is how specific it is. I feel like Christina Ricci's people must have heard these rumors on the Reddit thread or whatever. And so they wanted to amend it in the IMDb trivia page. Okay, that could be it. Like, oh, we need to make her not look crazy. <laughs> By the way, according be. to IMDb trivia, her last name is pronounced Ricci. Rich, Ricci, okay. So I guess uh, there we go. Good. Yay, another trivia point for me, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think that's a trivia point for me. I've been pronouncing her name as Ricci. You've been saying Ricky. No, you... Oh, my goodness. No, it was the other way around. Was it? <gasps> I thought... That's what I've been... Ricci is what I've been saying. Ricci. Well, who cares? Who cares? Okay. Um, oh, and then... And I'm, I'm going to put out a conspiracy theory about Wednesday right now. I know I know. we're, all, we're still talking about technically war. But um, my conspiracy theory is that Wednesday Adams grew up to become Jane in American Beauty, the the uh, the, the, the uh, you know the distraught uh, daughter of Kevin Spacey, toxic Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening, um, and I think on the IMDb trivia page I'm not finding it, but I think she was considered to be a, as the Thora Burt's role in um uh american beauty and she would have been perfect in in that movie thora birch was great in that movie too but i feel like that movie the writer wrote it with wednesday adams or a more uh uh advanced grown-up wednesday adams in mind that actually makes that i could see that her being in that american beauty movie i I, thora birch is great but yeah i think richie would be uh fantastic as well that'd be a that's a good well, you know, you, know she, you love doing those recastings. So you could probably recast it. She was in 
did you ever see the ice storm with Kevin Klein and uh, Joan Allen? Like that was almost American beauty light. I mean, it came out two years before American beauty. It's not quite as good as American beauty, but it definitely is almost like the same story, but set in the 1970s. It's the Ang Lee movie. And she's in that movie oh, wow. too. And I've never loved that movie. I would love to rewatch it though. But nice. interesting. Yeah. I, I digress. Okay. Who, who's your highest war performance? Oh, you had this. We had the same exact one. Oh, it's yeah, definitely yeah. That's yeah, obvious, obvious. Yeah, yeah. By far, there's nothing really. Like I think that the people who played the Grangers, they were pretty awesome in this role. But it's it's got to be the it's got to be Wednesday. She's yeah. by far the most electric thing. The one you want to focus on the most in this movie. Yeah. For sure. uh, worst performance. Who do you have for that? I went with John Franklin as cousin It. I, 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 didn't, I, didn't <laughs> Cousin really it. Have, I didn't really have a good reason for it. Um, I just feel like this is the wrong movie for Cousin It. I feel like Cousin It is belongs in the Muppets. Should have been the Muppet movie, maybe a Muppet Christmas Carol. Just kind of felt out of place in this movie. Maybe not the actor's fault, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, seeing Cousin It at the bachelor party where the stripper dies because she was submerged in the, in the frozen <laughs> cake. Also sort of an awkward moment in the movie. Yeah, because he's not like a he's a big character like in the uh, they made an animated TV show. So he was kind of a more bigger character in that. Um, so he having him show up on screen is kind of jarring, to say the least. So I can I can I can understand that. It's definitely kind of whoa, whoa, wait a second. Why is there's this big talking hairball like well, it is a great moment because you see all the fr- it's like todd browning's freaks from the 30s like you see the the uh the the, the siamese twins or the conjoined twins and you see the all the all the freaks that are at that bachelor party um mm-hmm. I, just, I i i don't really assign cousin it to a gender by the way cousin it is spelled with two t's did you know that i did not know that actually i just i'm looking at it right now it's, it's fascinating there we go the more you know <laughs> uh my worst performance it's kind of just like nitpicking as well i don't know why necessarily why but it's uh jimmy workman who plays pugsley it, it's he's he's good in the movie but if i had to pick somebody i was like yeah he's not he has the least to do really in this movie he's just kind of he's there he doesn't have the, the greatest lines he's he his his best gag is eat me as the turkey really um he ha- he has funny or he has funny moments when he's at the beginning of the movie but he doesn't have as much to do as the rest so and he's only been in four movies I don't that's kind of interesting he only was the two Adams family movies he has as good as it gets in the horror hall of fame in 1991 I, I was absolutely going to bring up his filmography very interesting filmography S- sad filmography he never really evolved um I, you know they just saw him as pugsley um i think his his born recasting would have been as rowley uh greg's friend in the diary of a wimpy kid movies have you ever seen those movies <laughs> i would love to dive those movies i love those movies i've only seen the fourth one which is not good oh no and that, that was like that one's shit i uh but uh, if see the the, the the first three particularly the the sequel by the way um this movie would rank on my top five movie sequels that were better than the original. Would you, would you agree? I would have to look at the list, but I it, it's going to be in the conversation. I definitely 100% think this movie is way better than the original. So, I, I yeah, it's in the conversation for me. Along with Diary of a Well, the first Diary of a Wimpy Kid is a pretty good movie. So, I couldn't really put Roderick Rules on the list. But I do think Roderick Rules is a criminally underrated subversive comedy of the 2010s maybe a little similar to this movie in some respects but 
will absolutely age well. Anyway, Rowley should have been – if they had made Diary of a Wimpy Kid in the 90s, um, Rowley would have been played by uh, Jimmy Workman. Great, great great name that doesn't sound like it's actually a real name. <laughs> that, is, that is true. That is true. So we're talking about some of the uh, – you know, he's kind of a lesser-known actor, and so I guess we have to go to some of the – maybe the characters that aren't really – the kind of the minor characters of the film. So let's oh, go with yeah. what minor oh, character. So many. <laughs> Two, there's so yeah, many characters where do we start with this yeah well i'll start it off with i think uh okay you start with yours then i'll go to mine don't steal mine though don't okay oh challenging okay um let's go with that's a guy in, with another interesting filmography with only four films to his name that is christopher hart do you know what character christopher hart plays no i do not he plays thing he plays the head oh nice okay <laughs> Uh, his only other role was the two Adams family movies, Idle Hands, and this other movie called Quicksilver Highway from '97. So in he, Idle Hands, was, I've seen Idle Hands. Was he cast in Idle, Idle Hands because he played a hand. He played a hand. He played he played a killer hand. Devon Soya, Soya cut his own hand off in that movie, and it's like a demon possessed hand. Like he was when he this hand was attached to his body he was like killing killing people while he wasn't rec- realizing that he was because he was like a stoner guy uh and then he cut off his hand the hand was able to walk around he even put his fingers to each finger in a, the pencil sharpener and was able to have like pointy fingers as he's walking around trying to kill people super like 90s like faculty the faculty era horror films that just like i i love those kind of horror movies they're kind of they're fun they're 90s like cheese all over it but they're enjoyable. So idle hands. <laughs> Can we say the, the most erotically sexually charged moment of this movie is when Joan Cusack essentially gives fellatio to the hand? Oh, wow. that, that got this movie um, R-rated territory very quickly. I also, one thing I admire about this movie is when Thing actually drives the car, you know, in so many goofy um, slapstick comedies like this, that you have to insert the obligatory car chase scene. But if you think about the mechanics of Thing driving a car, it would make sense that it would be really hard for him to drive or it to drive because like, obviously he's going to throw on the gas pedal. And it, it, I think, I think, look, in other words, it's justified that this movie does a car chase, crazy driving car scene that a lot of early nineties comedies had. Um, but it makes sense because a hand driving a car would be very erratic. And it's crazy too. Like he 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 slams on the brake, pushes the gas, goes to the steering wheel, and then it this somehow it's still gaining like acceleration as well as he's driving. Somehow, it's a it's a great it's a great chase scene for this movie to have. Yeah. Can I get to my uh, uh, minor character? I'm yes, so sir. You didn't take him for me. So my 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 favorite minor character because there are many is Tony Shalhoub as Jorge. Now, oh my goodness! I'm watching Monk right now too. It's Monk's on the background with Tony Shalhoub. I don't know how big Tony Shalhoub was in 1993. I, I don't think he was really that big yet. I think his breakout role came in Big Night um, in 1995. Um, but as Jorge, the sailor who sings "Macho Macho Man" by the Village People, Macho Macho Man, he's hilarious in that movie. And again, I think Tony Shalhoub actually had some recognition by the early 90s. I one of my conspiracy theories is I think there's something deeper to the Jorge character. Um, I don't own the DVD of this movie, but I would love to see if there are deleted scenes with Jorge as as the sailor 
who serenades these women who come into the random bar, including it doesn't matter whether they're old or whether they're young or whether they're fat or whether they're actually killers like Debbie Jelinski. Um, but he loves to serenade them with the village people. And I, I look, I want to know more about Jorge, where he's been stationed, whether it's like a Mr. Roberts, Jack Lemon situation, you know, he's in the Navy. I mean, I want, I want to know more about him. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good call right there. I like that one too. There's there's a lot of actually kind of more like recognizable faces in this movie that I remember too. Another one that I was I want to bring up too. Nathan Lane as this uh, guy behind right. the, the police officer. It's like wow, he's who in this movie too. Like what? What are you doing? Who, who stole the rock? That's, yeah. <laughs> the, that's Jewish humor inserted into this movie. And again, I'm allowed to say that because I'm Jewish. But like that, yeah. that's the writer again going for broke not caring about the quality of this movie, just just be, uh, seeing how funny and how over the top they could be. And I love Nathan Lane in this movie. You're absolutely right. So that's my second one. What's, what's your uh, other one? Oh, oh, actually, I will say, having them throw the Gomez family... Because he he goes goes off like I've seen this I've seen that I've seen all these like despicable things I was like and now I've seen you he's like throw him in prison throw him in the behind bars lock him sock him <laughs> is that what he says something like that yeah rock him sock him and lock him guys I love that and again kind of before Nathan Lane I feel like Nathan Lane's big breakout role it was um as as Pumbaa or excuse me Timon in The Lion King I don't know how much recognition he really had this movie comes out a year before The Lion King I I don't know how well known he was i mean he had been on broadway but like that's a great kind of minor role i also had uh david hyde pierce um as uh the the doctor the delivery room doctor were you ever a fan of (laughs) with kelsey Grammer? uh he he plays niles crane did you ever watch frazier i've i've seen frazier yeah i've watched it with my grandparents yeah i I was i haven't watched like every episode but i've seen enough of the show yeah so frazier comes out in 1993 and by this point, David Hyde Pierce had done movies where he was very minor roles. The, the other most notable role from his filmography, he was in Sleepless in Seattle, where he played Meg Ryan's brother. But obviously, oh, okay. Frazier was a star-making role for him, and he got some, some good roles after that. By the way, low-key, David, David Hyde Pierce, top, I would put him in the top, maybe top 10, maybe top 5, if I'm feeling it, top 5 funniest late-show guests. If you ever watch him on like Letterman or like Jimmy Fallon or Conan, hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Like, I, I don't know if you'd expect it from him. I mean, obviously he was a comic actor, but he was also very, you know, sort of the John Gilgood of you know, classically trained Yale, Juilliard educated actors, but he's hilarious. Great, great actor. Um, anyway, I don't remember him as the delivery room doctor, though. I I, I want to go, go rewatch it again just for that scene. Could it, he, he could be the one delivering... Uh, the baby or he could be the one holding the baby upside down where the thing goes flies and smacks him on the butt yeah exactly and a scene yeah. that was very much an ode to like like um you know a tom green and uh, uh like uh freddie gets fingered or something like that like that that scene was very um well i don't know it was it, it, it was a, a very nice scene in, in this movie one of the many additions to it but uh yeah i yeah. love the whole cast in this movie can we talk a little bit about peter mcnichol and christine baranski I mean, again, yeah. we talk about actors that are just going for broke in this movie. I mean, these were classically trained actors that did serious work. Peter McNichol was in was in Sophie's Choice. I mean, that was like a serious movie in the early 80s. This role is ridiculous, and but both of them are amazing in it. Yeah, that's why I was saying that they're, they're, they're kind of low-key MVPs of this movie. like Or not, not MVPs, but highest war, highest war for me too. Because I can't picture anybody else but those two actors. 
in this movie. I think you could definitely make the case for both of them, particularly when Peter McNichol takes out the guitar and starts singing Kumbaya. Uh, what, another great <laughs> scene in this movie, uh, one of the things I love about that scene is how the sound editor not so subtly puts in the sound of coyotes howling in the background. I, I love yeah. that. It's perfect comic timing for it. Just wonderful. <laughs> and he just randomly gets a guitar too. It's like, yep. wait, what? <laughs> I, I love it. That, that's, yeah, those two guys are awesome. We just, uh, my wife and I just got done binge watching The Big Bang Theory as well. And uh, what uh, the, what's the lady? Christine, uh, Christine Barnsinski was um, one of the people on that show as well. And she's completely different. And seeing her in this was, it was, it's great. Like, she's fantastic. She's also been in a lot of other uh, right. popular shows right now too, but. Well, her name's Christine Baranski. She's been in. Baranski, sorry. She's never been a lead role in anything. She's always been in the background. She was in Chicago. She was in Mamma Mia. She's, I feel like, I, I'm not, I don't know this for sure, but I feel like she's got a Broadway background and uh, she's great. And, and again, this, I feel like when the filmmakers were making this movie, they thought for Becky Granger, uh, Martin Granger, they thought, let's go Kathy Lee Gifford. We're, we're not going to cast Kathy Lee Gifford because that would defeat the purpose of the joke. But let's go for someone who can do a Kathy Lee Gifford imitation. Yeah, great. It's just fantastic casting. That's what yeah. this movie has. This movie, fantastic casting. Like, again, that it, the, the, the idea of recasting this movie defeats its whole purpose. And this movie is perfectly cast, like a lot of stupid 90s movies were. Um, did you ever see the Brady Bunch movie? Again, another Paramount comedy based on a 60s TV series that this movie has some shared DNA with. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I do remember really enjoying that one too. And even like the there's the sequel to it too, like a very Brady sequel, which I don't remember that. Great movie. Both of them are great. Yeah. And yeah. again, you could never tell Todd and Terry to watch it. They could never understand it. See, they were too they were too busy watching Jurassic Park and Men in Black and all those conventional movies from the 1990s. I watched the subversive uh, TV series spin-off movies like the Brady Bunch movie and Adam's Family Values. Like that's what shaped my personality in movie watching. So if we did have to recast one character in this movie, who would Nick Cage play? Oh, uh, that's a. <sighs> I I do have one. If you if you're looking for freakouts, yeah, go with yours. If we're going with like a freakout thing, it would be kind of funny to see him play Fester. Like, cause, cause he has that, he'll be bald at start off and he gets that like fake, like weird hair halfway through it. And to see him make all these like weird expressions, it, it, I don't know how well it will work, but at least he has some like, he can put in his crazy facial expressions in the movie, at least a little bit. It, Nick Cage being the movie, it, it, yeah. Fester was one of them or having somebody like super small, like low key role, maybe like the, um, the guy who's hosting that murder mystery show, maybe like have yeah. him like be that guy. I could see that. How about how about um how about Gary Granger? Ah, oh, the guy's so good though. <laughs> yeah, that would be funny though. It would be funny to see him like just so hyper hypergenic and <laughs> making the, his vision come to life. Yes, exactly. I I think I would go with Gary Granger. I mean, Peter McNichol is perfect for that casting. Again, if you were a fan of Ali McBeal, he was great on that show. Um, but I, whenever I see Gary Granger, I think of Kumbaya and the guitar. <laughs> Kumbaya, oh. my God. Did you All ever right, so, summer camp as a kid? 
I mean, that's one of the things that this movie gets, I, I feel like, very accurate. Un unfortunately, I went to a lot of summer camps when I was a kid, and this movie is pretty damn accurate about summer camp. Like, it, it, you know what? You have these, like, caffeine-induced um, counselors that are over-enthusiastic, over and it's just cringy to watch. And you have competitions like the, the saving, your per saving someone's life, drowning. I, th that, that resonated with me very much watching this movie as a kid. I've been to summer camp uh, one year, but it was it was like my I was in high school, so it was just like going as a, like like this a week long thing. So it wasn't like super. I was it was like oh whatever. I'm going to hang out with my friends. That's all I really thought about. Then I was like a counselor, so I I definitely agree that it does. There's a really good they they do summer summer camp really well for right. sure. This is kind of a weird one for this movie. Uh, who's the best best stick man? Oh well, it's got to be. Well, I mean, are we talking about frequency or like breadth? Because frequency <laughs> was more Gomez for sure. I mean, Gomez yeah. and Letitia are probably the most horniest uh, couple in movie history. I would say. Um, I can't really think of another couple that would quite. Maybe, maybe like Steve Carell and Catherine Keener at the end of Forty Year Old Virgin, but I, I think Gomez and Letitia <laughs> would win. Um, but in terms of breadth, in terms of variety, um, not a lot of solid competition. I mean, you're talking about Gary Granger, Joel Glicker, Lurch, Cousin It. I'm not, I'm not uh, Fester. I'm, I'm not seeing a whole lot of stick men um, prowess in in this movie. So I think I'm just gonna I'm gonna stand my ground and go with Gomez. Yeah, it's it's that's the only answer really. Too, I was thinking Gomez as well. It it makes sense. I was really I left this one blank. I was like, Maybe who knows? Sack might have somebody. What was that? Maybe Jorge, you know? I mean, if Jorge is willing to serenade the old lady who walks away from them, um, maybe, you know, he's not he doesn't hold himself accountable to high standards. There we go. He's a macho man, so I think that would make sense. He Jorge's our stick man of this movie, I think. I think it's very possible. <laughs> I think uh, the next one I think we have is the, the biggest douchebag. I think there's a there's a few to choose here as well. I'm gonna I'll kick this out. probably Amanda Buckman was uh pretty uh pretty easy kind of the snobby rich privileged white girl definitely looking down on wednesday and a lot of the other kids with who are maybe not as fortunate as her and she's kind of like the total brown noser kissing ass to the 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 great um the grangers as well and uh yeah it's definitely that's that's the biggest one in this movie for yeah, me the biggest big, the biggest line that my wife laughed at last night watching it was um um I'll play the victim. Always the victim. That that was that was a good yeah. That was a warm <laughs> from from Wednesday. Um, I think that you're right. Uh, Amanda is pretty clearly the biggest douchebag in this movie. Um, I, one of the things I love about this movie is that uh, jo Joan Cusack as Debbie Debbie Jelinski. I mean, the villain of this movie, but not the biggest douchebag. I think in a lot of ways, what I love about this movie is that the Adams family actually um, understands her. Especially when she gives that that pre that primitive PowerPoint presentation at the end of the movie <laughs> all of her ex husbands and how she got the Malibu Barbie, um, I love how the, the, the like Morticia and Granny they're like oh a Malibu Barbie how could they like they absolutely um, understand her and empathize with her so uh, she's not the biggest douchebag in this movie the only other candidate would be um, Amanda's uh, father 
um, who's so douchey that he doesn't really intervene when her when his daughter is being burned at the stake until the very last. <laughs> He, he really has to like think about it like uh, hey uh, excuse me be- beg your pardon um he, he really <laughs> has to uh, use those sort of um you know formalities before he intervenes and uh mrs buckman's t- a total karen eventually like yeah. she's like another she's like hey uh, uh she would totally yeah the buckman's would be one i think the grangers at since but you know who know that might be a cal- caffeine indulged like hyper yeah. like hyperness there too so we'll, we'll give them a pass on this time but it's definitely the buckman's for sure I guess if we're talking about burning at the stake, I think that kind of transitions pretty well into the best scene of the movie. And I think for me, I think that's probably the best scene. It's definitely the most like one that really aged really well, especially when they're this Gary's vision of this play. And it's pretty cringe, especially when they're especially looking at it with this uh, 2020 lens. But then Wednesday comes in and says, but wait, we're not going to eat with you. And then just kind of goes off on her little, her little speech too. And it's like, yes and my wife actually came home she was out doing stuff and she came in and watched during that scene she's like yeah get it get it <laughs> go wednesday i think yeah. that's like for my that whole and then whole like the the uh, burning down these like houses and then burning the kid at the stake and then the it ends with uh her and joel like riding in a canoe it's like that whole sequence is that was my favorite probably out of, of many great scenes of this movie I, I 100% agree. I mean, that's uh, for me, that's the most iconic scene from this movie. Um, I feel like this is now the best Thanksgiving movie. I mean, I, I don't, I, the only other real Thanksgiving movie that exists is home for the holidays with Jodie Foster. I don't know if you ever, ever saw that movie again from the mid nineties. No. Um, really, really good movie. I feel like Robert Downey Jr. is in it. It's, it's as she, uh, 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 Holly Hunter's in it. Jodie Foster directed really good Thanksgiving movie. Um, and Hannah and her sisters, which again is problematic, cancel culture, whatever. But this is a great Thanksgiving movie because of that scene. And now I think whenever Thanksgiving happens, I think of, um, eat us before we're good and dead. White meat. <laughs> I mean, a very catchy song and a, a quietly a low key testament to Gary Granger's vision. I mean, he was a very good songwriter, very, very catchy sort of commercial like um, uh, uh, themes, you know. He should I have definitely been a commercial agree. Writer. He should have been like Hugh Grant in About a Boy. He should have written a jingle for a commercial. There we go. <laughs> Who knows? That could be what he did after the fact after he get fired from camp. Uh, the, I thought of another Thanksgiving movie. I know you've never seen this or even heard of it. It's a, it's a, it's a B slasher movie called Thanks Killing. It's about a talking turkey who goes out on a murderous crime spree. And his, uh, his catchphrase is gobble, gobble, motherfucker. Oh, I got it. Yeah. That sounds awesome. It, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty bad, but you're watching it for how bad it is. Now, see, the problem is Thanksgiving, the, the cultural origins of Thanksgiving are horrible and, you know, whatever. However, because of the food quantity, it has to be in the consideration for best holiday. Because the, the, the quantity of the food and the variety of the food really makes it a truly tremendous holiday. It's just, it, it has bad roots. I mean, it goes back to the question we were talking about earlier. Did, you know, Jonah Hill, Crash. I mean, does these pre, the, the, the actions of, of, of you earlier in life, does that justify continuing those practices, even if that person like Jonah Hill is a, is a culturally accepted actor? You know, do we accept Thanksgiving yeah. for its great food and cuisine in spite of its problematic origins? This movie doesn't oh, answer that question, but it, you know, it, it was something it doesn't. Thought about watching watching it which is curious because ostensibly the summer camp takes place during summer 
And this would be at the end of the summer camp, so maybe in July or August. So why are they putting on a Thanksgiving show? Well, he said that they every year at the end of camp, they have a, a holiday they dedicate a play to or oh. so, something like that. So I think that's this is this. Right. It could have been Christmas, like in July. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> One year. But uh, I guess like we can can we can transition to some gripes and flaws with our movie. Zero flaws. I think this movie is just about perfect. Just about perfect. Yeah, it's just basically. I mean, like the, little picky things, but the cassette tape, like that's totally iTunes now, like or an iPod or something like that. Uh, and then, like my only thing that I caught was when they were basically putting Joel Pugsley and Wednesday in the Hubble, the humble hut. And they made him watch a bunch of VHS tapes. And it was like Lassie, then a little mermaid Bambi. And it was like, we can't escape Disney. And they cut out and they're, they're playing three consecutive non Disney songs there. Maybe they couldn't get, maybe they couldn't get the rights to that. But that's one thing I was like, Oh, the sound of music is good. The Brady bunch is good. But, and the Annie was the third song, but no Disney songs, you know, but, well, they did mention Bambi and The Little Mermaid. There's no way to have the right to it, though, because this movie didn't have enough money to pay for the copyright for those. <laughs> <laughs> most likely, yeah, most likely. Uh, one other thing was, too, uh, with Debbie, when she was explaining, you know, in a TV show pr- previously, we had Ursula, Carmen, and Nadine was her three aliases with her three different husbands. However, in her PowerPoint presentation, she explained... You know, I was I dated this uh, what was this kind of this doctor of some sort, and he uh, they couldn't do something. Oh, Debbie, we can't do this. She refers to herself as Debbie with this one marriage, and then went with a senator. Oh, we can't have a Mercedes this year, Debbie. So kills this one, and her third marriage is to Fester. So it kind of there's some timelines. Like, wait, how many has she killed more people than what the, the has been reported or what's going on with that so that she could her body count could be up to uh, almost uh, almost five with fester instead of three where does this rank on the joan cusack filmography because i secretly think it's pretty high up there i think she's great it, she's great yeah it's great uh, school of rock is another one i really love with her in sure. it too oh she's great i mean i do have to say her and fester scenes were not my favorite plot in this movie because i love the summer camp stuff more but she is great in this movie. I mean, she's really funny. And um, I, I, yeah, maybe quietly a high war performance. And, and she's awesome in it. Yeah, I think it's uh, a high, possibly like low key high war performance. But unfortunately, the scenes that we don't really care for that interaction in the movie so much, we kind of maybe don't think of it as highly. That could be something. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I love yeah. that she, like, she kind of gets the Adams. Like even when she first meets them, she's like, Hubert. Hmm, I like it. It's filthy. Like she, she gets, she gets their vibe immediately, and you know, very perceptive. Unlike those other, you know, knockoff Mrs. Doubtfire Dannies or nannies that uh, that that feel pretty miserably. Is it time to clean our room with a little puppet now, and everything? Jeez, I've had it up to here. Where is that baby? Which part? Yeah, exactly. yeah, and again, this movie. I mean, we should have a drinking game for this movie with Wednesday one-liners. I mean, that would get you shit-faced pretty quickly in this movie. That's going to be an almost sideways after dark episode. I like it. Wednesday one-liners drinking game. LVP. What's our LVP for this? I'm going to go Terry and Todd because they could never understand. <laughs> the movie. They'll never watch it, and even if they do watch it, they'll never understand its genius. And they're probably listening right now, like. These guys are idiots. Yep. <laughs> maybe. I don't know if they've gotten this far in the podcast, but maybe. If, if yeah. 
Uh, well, I thought of one. Any parent who would pay their kids, uh, pay for sending their kids to summer camp, $20,000 to send your kids to summer camp. It's wow. Quite a, Is that how much it was? I, I missed that line. There was this line where, oh, uh, Joel, when they're uh, running bear, when they announced like, oh, it's running bear. And his, they cut to his parents. It's like, oh, oh yeah. we sent we sent him, tw- we paid $20,000. He's can't, he's Mr. Woohoo. So yeah, they, yeah. they mentioned 20,000. I'm like, damn, that's a lot of money. Right. And that's like, you got to think that's like $53,000 in 2020 money, right? With inflation. Damn. That's wow. So yeah. that's, that's the LVP that, uh, any parent would send them to that camp. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I mean, the, the Adams family have a lot of money. I mean, if they're willing to shell out $40,000 and not even bring it up with Wednesday and Pugsley, I mean, you know, they, they believe Debbie, they just took them to that camp. And, uh, I mean, why isn't Debbie Jelinski going after Gomez? He's the one with a lot of money. If he can just, you know, splurge on $40,000 for summer camp for the kids. And then how are they getting this money? Too? Does, That's another question. Does, does Fester just not spend any money? He just lives with the, with the Adams family. Just, you know, is the, you know, the, uh, the third, the third wheel in it. He doesn't even have. Yeah, to- I guess so. Yeah. Freeloader. Freeloader. Yeah, well, that, that's what the first movie was about, was about Fester and some sort of impersonation scheme, and it just wasn't wasn't funny. Yeah, because he was trying to get, like, Gomez's money. That, that's yeah, how it kind of tied into it, it yeah. Very, very plot-driven, whereas this movie, again, just went for broke with one-liners. Really didn't care about the plot at all, which was just great. And we already talked about our MVP. It's, it's clearly Wednesday. And I would also say our love for the movie is probably a most valuable player for the movie, too. Yeah, yes, I agree. Uh, anything else you want to, like tie into this what talk about well i just wanted to say that a line that i i smiled at last night was when debbie was talking about how you know we have to make the ultimate we, we uh, you know we uh, we should wait until our wedding night to give our give ourselves to each other and make the ultimate sacrifice and fester says a goat <laughs> i definitely that was a big laugh at that moment a line I did not remember. Very, very funny line. There's, there's a lot of funny lines here. Again, uh, so it, was there anything that you wanted to like your quote of the day for the for the movie? That was my quote. A goat. That was your quote. Okay, the, a goat. Okay, okay, I got you. Oh, you kind of. I wrote down two. You brought one up earlier about the always playing the victim line. That was a, that's yeah. a great one. But this goes back to the Granger when they first introduced the, everybody, all the campers. Mrs. Granger says, "We are here to learn, to grow, and to play and have fun." And Gary says. Because that's what being privileged is all about. Hey, man, we need to do like more early 90s deep dives. You know, like I'm thinking, I mean, we said arachnophobia, but but the early 90s was it was a great era for for shitty movies that are actually pretty funny. If you look at them in a 2020 light. And, and this is definitely one that aged really well. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. And we, we could definitely set another thing up. Definitely. We have to do this more. Yeah. All right, I think that's. I think I think we're pretty good talking about Adam's family values and why Todd and Terry should watch it, and why you that's should a your podcast Adam's family values. But there, there we go. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining Zach and I on this awesome conversation about Adam's family values, a very fun '90s film that you should definitely check out. Definitely, again, guys, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you guys leave a, a review if you guys are listening on iTunes. And I will read those out on the next episode as well. Until next time, go watch the movie. That's all I have to say. Go watch it now. And here is a here is let's just play the Adams Family theme song. There you go. Listen to it. Bye. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. 
they're all together okay the adams family the house is a museum when people come to see them they really are a scream the adams family neat sweet